Chapter Nineteen of A Mating in the Wilds by Otwell Binns. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Hot Trail. The cold Northland dawn had broken when Stane was roused from his sleep by the voice of his companion. Monsieur, Monsieur, it is time to eat. Stane rubbed his eyes and looked round. Then he stood upright and stretched himself every stiff muscle crying out against the process. He looked at the waiting breakfast and then at Bernard. One glance at the drawn face of the latter told him that he had not slept, but he refrained from comment on the fact, knowing well what thoughts must have made sleep impossible for him. "'Have you seen anything yet, Jean?' he asked, as he seated himself again. "'Not yet, monsieur,' answered the trapper. But if Chief George did not lie, we cannot miss Chickmock and the others. But if he lied, asked Stane, with a sudden accession of anxiety, then we shall have to range and find the trail. But I do not think he lie. He too much afraid. Heat, monsieur. Then we can watch the lake for the coming of Chipmunk. Stane ate his breakfast quickly and when he had finished, accompanied Bernard a little way up the trail, which, running along the base of the cliff by which they had camped, made a sudden turn between the rocks and unexpectedly opened out on a wide view. Before him lay the snow-covered lake of Little Moose, a narrow lake perhaps fifteen miles long. On one side, a range of high rocky hills, a spur of which formed his own vantage place, and on the other side were lower hills covered with bush and trees almost to their crests. From the height where he stood he had an almost bird's-eye view of the lake, and he examined it carefully. Nothing moved on its virgin surface of snow. It was as blank as Mordred's shield. He examined the shore at the foot of the wood-covered hills carefully, creek by creek, Bay by bay, his eyes searched the shoreline for any sign of life. He found none. Nowhere was there any sign of life. Any thin column of smoke betokening the presence of man. He looked at the other shore of the lake, though without any expectation of finding that which he sought. It was bleak and barren, and precipitous in places, where the hills seemed to rise directly from the lake's edge. Nothing moved there, and a single glance told him that the land trail on that side was an impossibility. He looked at his companion. "'They have not yet arrived,' said Bernard, answering his unspoken question. "'They camp in the woods for the night.' "'If Chief George lied?' "'I say again, I think he not lie. We must have the patience, monsieur. There is nothing else that we can do. We are here and we must watch. The minutes passed slowly, and to keep themselves from freezing, the two men were forced to do sentry go on the somewhat narrow platform where they stood, occasionally varying the line of their short march by turning down the trail towards their camp, a variation which for perhaps a couple of minutes hid the lake from view. Every time they so turned, when the lake came in sight again, Stane looked down its length with expectation in his eyes. 
and every time he was disappointed. An hour passed. Still they watched without any sign of their quarry to cheer them. Then Jean Bernard spoke. "'We tire ourselves for nothing, monsieur. We walk, walk, walk together. And when Chickmunk come, we too tired to follow him. It is better that we watch in turn.' Stane admitted the wisdom of this, and since he felt that it was impossible for him to sit still, and suspected that his companion was sadly in need of rest, he elected to keep the first watch. "'Very well, Jean. Do you go and rest first. But tell me, before you go, where the party we are looking for should strike the lake.' Oh, "'I forgot to tell you that, monsieur.' He pointed towards the southern shore of the lake, where a small tree-covered island stood about half a mile from the shore. "'You see the island, monsieur?' Just opposite there is a creek. The regular trail comes out to the lake just there, and it is there that you may look for the coming of Chickmunk. Stane looked at the island and marked the position of the creek. Then an idea struck him. Would it not be better, Bernard, if we removed our camp to the island? We could then surprise Chickmunk when he came. No, monsieur, I think of that last night but I remember that we must build a fire, and the smoke, it will tell the tale, while the odor, it is perceived afar. Then the dogs, they give tongue when other dogs appear, and where are we? Another thing, suppose Chickmunk not come on the regular trail. Suppose he knew another way through the woods, and come out further up the lake. If we on the island, we not see him. But up here, he swept a hand in front of him. We behold the whole lake, and we not miss him. Yes, agreed Stane. You're right, Jean. Now go and rest. I will keep a bright lookout. I not doubt that, monsieur. You have the prize to watch for, but I... He turned away without finishing his sentence, and Stane resumed his sentry-go, stopping from time to time to view the long expanse of the snow-covered lake, and to search the woods along the shore. As the time passed without bringing any change, and as the unbroken surface of the snow mocked him with its emptiness, he grew sick at heart, and a feverish anxiety mounted within him. He felt utterly helpless, and a fear that Chief George had lied and had deliberately misled them grew in him until it reached the force of conviction. Watching that empty valley of the lake, he felt, was a waste of time. To be doing nothing, when Helen was being hurried, to be knew not what fate, was torture to him. It would, he thought, be better to go back on their trail, and endeavor to pick up that of the kidnappers, since that way they would at least be sure that they were on the right lines. So strongly did this idea appeal to him, that he turned down the trail to the camp to propose the plan to his companion. But when he turned the corner of the cliff, it was to find Jean Bernard fast asleep in front of the fire. And, though his first impulse was to waken him, he refrained, remembering how tired the man must be, and how necessary it was that he should be as fresh as possible when the moment for action arrived. 
No, he whispered, as he looked at the bent form of the sleeping man. I will wait one hour, and then we will decide. He himself was beginning to feel the strain of the steady marching to and fro, and decided that it would be wise to spare himself as much as possible. Accordingly, he seated himself by the fire, and contenting himself by walking to the top of the trail to view the lake at intervals from ten to fifteen minutes. Twice he did this, and the second time was made aware of a change in the atmosphere. It had grown much colder, and as he turned the corner of the cliff, a gust of icy wind smote him in the face. He looked downwards. The surface of the lake was still barren of life, but not of movement. Films of snow, driven by the gusty wind, drove down its narrow length, were lifted higher, and then subsided as the wind fell. Overhead, the sky was of a uniform leaden hue, and he knew that before long there would be snow. And if snow came... His heart stood almost still at the thought. It might snow for days, and in the storm, when all trails would be obliterated, it would be an easy matter to miss Helen and her captors altogether. As he returned to the fire, his mind was full of forebodings. He was afraid, and though Jean Bernard slept on, he himself could not rest. He made up the fire, prepared bacon and moose meat for cooking, set some coffee to boil. It would be as well to have a meal in case the necessity for a start should arise. These things done, he went once more to the outlook and surveyed the snow-covered landscape. The wind was still for the moment, and there was no wandering wisps of snow. His first glance was towards the creek opposite the island. There was nothing there to arrest attention. His eyes traveled further without any light of expectation in them. Creek by creek, bay by bay, he followed the shoreline. Then, in a second, his gaze grew fixed. The lake was no longer devoid of life. Far off, at least ten miles, as he swiftly calculated, a blur of black dots showed on the surface of the snow. Instantly, he knew it for what it was, a team of sled dogs. His heart leaped at the sight, and the next moment he was running towards the camp. "'Jean, Jean!' he cried. "'Jean Bernard!' The sleeping man passed from slumber to full wakefulness with the completeness that characterized a healthy child. "'Ah, monsieur,' he said, standing upright, "'they have arrived?' "'I do not know, but there is a dog-train a long way up the lake.' "'I will take one look,' said the trapper, beginning to walk quickly towards the head of the trail. Stane went with him and indicated the direction. "'There, where the shore sweeps inward,' Do you see, Jean? Oui, monsieur. With bent brows, the trapper stared at the blur of dots on the white surface, and after a couple of seconds began to count softly to himself. Un, deux, trois, quatre. Then he stopped. Four dogs and one man, he said, turning to his companion. But Chickmunk, it is not. Behold, monsieur, he comes this way. Then who? That is not to be told. The men in the wilderness are many. 
As he finished speaking, a gust of wind drove suddenly in their faces, bringing with it a few particles of snow, and he looked up into the leaden sky. Presently, he said, it will snow, monsieur. Let's go and eat, and then if Chickmunk has not appeared, we will go meet that man out there. He may have the news. Reluctantly, Stane turned with him and went back to the camp. He had no desire for food, but he forced himself to eat, and when the meal was finished, he assisted his companion to load the sledge. Then Bernard spoke again. We will take one more look, monsieur, before we harness the dogs. They went up to the outlook together. The lake once more showed its white expanse unbroken, the little blot of moving dots having withdrawn. Stane stared on the waste, with an expression of blank dismay upon his face. Then he turned to his companion. The man, he camped, explained Bernard. He not pushed for time, and he know it's snow before long. We find him, monsieur, and then, by gar, look there. As he gave vent to the exclamation, he pointed excitedly up the lake. Two miles beyond the island, the neighborhood of which Stane had gazed at so often and hopelessly during the last three hours, a dog train had broken from the wood and taken to the surface of the lake, three men accompanying it. Chickmunk, behold, monsieur. On a mutual impulse they turned, and running back to the camp, began hurriedly to harness the dogs to the sledge. A few minutes later they were on the move, and turning the corner of the cliff, began the descent towards the lake. As they did so, both glanced at the direction of the sled they were pursuing. It was moving straight ahead, fairly close inshore. Having evidently sought the level surface of the lake for easier traveling. More than that, they had not leisure to notice, for the descent to the lake was steep, and it required the weight and skill of both to keep the sled from overrunning the dogs. But in the space of four minutes it was accomplished and with a final rush they took the level trail of the lake's frozen and snow-covered surface. As they did so, a gust of wind brought a scurry of snow in their faces, and Bernard looked anxiously up into the sky. "'By and by it snow like anything, monsieur. We must race to catch Chickmunk before it come.' Without another word, he stepped ahead and began to make the trail for the dogs, while Stane took the gee-pole to guide the sledge. Bernard bent to his task, and made a rattling pace, traveling in a bee-line for their quarry, since the lake's surface offered absolutely no obstructions. Stane at the gee-pole wondered how long he could keep it up, and from time to time glanced at the sled ahead, which, seen from the same level, now was half hidden in the midst of snow. He noted with satisfaction that they seemed to be gaining on it, and rejoiced to think that, as Jean Bernard's dog were in fine metal and absolutely fresh, they could not be long before they overhauled it. Presently the trapper stopped to rest, and Stain himself moved ahead. "'I will take a turn at trail-breaking,' he said, "'and do you run behind, Jean?' 
It was a different manner of going ahead of the dogs on the unbroken snow. In a little time his muscles began to ache intolerably. It seemed as if the ligaments of the groin were being pulled by pincers, and the very bone of the leg that he had broken seemed to burn with pain. But again, as on the previous night, he set his teeth and defied the dreaded Mal de Roquette. New hope sustained him before him within sight, as he believed, was the girl whom in the months of their wilderness sojourn had he learned to love, and who on the previous night, how long ago it seemed, in the face of imminent death, had given herself to him unreservedly. His blood quickened at the remembrance. He ignored the pangs he was enduring, the sweat, induced by the violent exertion, froze on eyebrows and eyelashes. But he ignored the discomfort and pressed on, the snow swirling past his ankles in a miniature storm. Twice or thrice he lifted his bent head and measured the distance between him and the quarry ahead. It was, he thought, nearer, and cheered, he bent his body again to the nerve-wracking toil. Half an hour passed, and though the wind was rising steadily, blowing straight in their teeth and adding greatly to their labors, the snow kept off. They were still gaining slowly, creeping forward yard by yard, the men with the trail ahead apparently unaware of their pursuit. Then they struck the trail made by their quarry, and the work became less arduous and the pace quickened. By gar, cried Bernard, as they hit the trail, we get them now. They make the trail for us. Yes, answered Stane, his eyes ablaze with excitement. A mile and three-quarters now separated the two teams, and as they followed in the trail that the others had to make, their confidence seemed justified. But nature and man alike were to take a hand and upset their calculations. In the wind, once more, there came a smother of snow. It was severe while it lasted, and blotted out all vision of the team ahead. As it cleared, the two pursuers saw that their quarry had turned inshore, moving obliquely towards a tree-covered crown bluff that jutted out into the lake. Jean Bernard marked the move and spoke almost gleefully. They fear snow and go to make camp. By the mass we get them like a wolf in the trap. The sledge they pursued drew near the bluff, then suddenly Jean Bernard threw back his head in a listening attitude. Hark, he cried, what was that? I heard nothing, answered Stane. What did you fancy, you? The sentence was never finished, for borne to him on the wind came two or three sharp sounds, like the cracks of distant rifles. He looked at his companion. The detonation of bursting trees far in the woods, he began, only to be interrupted. No, no, not the trees, but rifles. Look there, monsieur. Something is happening. It certainly seemed so. The sled, which had almost reached the bluff, had swung from it again, and had turned towards the open lake. But now, instead of three figures, they could see only one. And even while they watched again, 
came the distant crack of a rifle, a faint faraway sound, something felt by sensitive nerves rather than anything heard. And then the solitary man, left with the sledge, and making for the sanctuary of the open lake, plunged suddenly forward, disappearing from sight in the snow. Another fusillade, and the sled halted, just as the two men broke from the cover of the bluff and began to run across the snow in the direction of it. "'By gar, by gar!' cried Jean Bernard in great excitement. "'Things they happen. There are other men who want Chickmunk, and they get him, too.' Then with a clamoring wind came the snow, blotting out all further vision of the tragedy ahead. It hurtled about them in fury, and they could see scarcely a yard in front of them. It was snow that was vastly different from the large soft flakes of more temperate zones. A wild rain of ice-like particles that, as it struck, stung intolerably, and which, driven in the wind, seemed like a solid sheet held up to veil the landscape. It swirled and drifted about them, and drove in their faces, as if directed by some malevolent fury. It closed their eyes, clogged their feet, stopped their breathing, and at the moment when it was most essential made progress impossible. Dogs and men bowed to the storm, and after two minutes of lost endeavor in attempting to face it, the course was altered, and they raced for the shore and the friendly shelter of the trees. When they reached it, breathless and gasping, they stood for a moment, while the storm shrieked among the treetops and drove its icy hail-like small shots against the trunks. In the shelter of one of them, Stane, as his breath came back to him, swung his rifle off his shoulder, and began to strip from it the deer-hide covering. Jean Bernard saw him, and in order to make himself heard, he shouted to him. "'What you do, monsieur?' "'I'm going after them, Jean. There's something badly wrong.' "'Oui, but with the storm, what can you do, monsieur?' "'I can find that girl,' he said. "'Think, man, if she is bound to the sled in this.' "'Oui, oui, monsieur, I understand, but... "'I shall work my way in the cover of the trees till I reach the bluff. "'If the storm abates, you will follow, but do not pass the bluff.' There will be shelter in the lee of it, and I will wait your coming there. Go, and God go with you, monsieur, but do not forget the rifles which were fired there. I will keep them in mind, answered Stane, and then setting his face to the storm, he began to work his way along the edge of the wood. End of chapter 19